excuse me. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'd encourage you to go there because it's not going to be on the screen, but we're going to read this together as we jump into this text. Ephesians chapter 1, sorry, I keep saying 1, I meant 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we already talked to 2, we're done with that, or 1, we're done with that one. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to do verses 1 through 10 today. So if you can find the place where they are, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you can find them, would you, and if you're able, would you stand with me as we read this? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This text, by itself, deserves a response of amen. This text, by itself, as we read this, as we look at what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus, as the Holy Spirit spoke through him and this letter was coined or or written, I want us to actually look at the goodness of this text. And there's going to be a few themes we're going to see in this text. And I want, uh, we say this all the time, there's a test at the end, so we'd encourage you to take notes. There's note uh, opportunity There's notes in your bulletin. But some of you know me. Some of you know my story. Some of you could share my testimony for me, and so I'm not going to get into it. Other than, if you don't know, I grew up atheistic. My dad wanted nothing to do with God, and I learned a lot from him when it came to kind of being against the idea of religion in any type of sense, believing in a deity. And it wasn't until when I was eight years old, my mom passed away, and when she died, if God were real, I thought he was evil and terrible, so I wanted nothing to do with him. When I went to high school, I used to argue with Christians, and I was good at it. I took pride in my atheism, and I was good at it, but it wasn't until uh, my senior year in high school that someone challenged me with what Christianity is about. And so I started to try to disprove the specific thing that Christianity hinges on. And there is no more important moment in history than a day, the third day, in 33 AD, after Jesus had died on a cross and laid in a grave, than that one moment, that event where Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That deserves an amen as well. I need you to understand that we're here to participate, not just to observe, all right? And there is no more important moment in history than when a Jewish carpenter who had been tried for supposedly being a blasphemer came out of the grave. He vacated the grave, not by removal by someone else, not by foul play. This vacating of the grave was the power of God because a dead man was now alive. Jesus had risen. So what I don't want us to miss this morning is, yes, it's not Easter. 
But I was asked yesterday as I was training a church up in Millbrae about if we should emphasize Christmas or we should emphasize Easter. And my response was, Easter's every day because Jesus is still alive. And he's as alive today as he was on the third day when he vacated the grave. And so I want us to understand there's no more important moment than when this man, this God who was dead came alive. So I want us, as we're going to look at this text in Ephesians 2, to understand that we're looking at something where someone dead can come alive. And I want us to understand as the church, as Paul's going to talk to the church, that all of us are born with a certain nature. And we're going to see as Paul talks about this nature, about what God decides to do when he intervenes. And so we're going to talk about some bad news, but I believe the bad news accentuates how great the good news is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. As for you means you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Often when we think transgressions and sins, I'm sure transgression is not a word we use too often, but transgressions essentially means to trespass outside of God's will, to not do what you ought to do. And when we sin, we often think that a sin is just, oh, I did this wrong, I shouldn't have watched Game of Thrones, I shouldn't, whatever, all right? Some of you are like, what's that? Awesome. Keep it that way. So... But sins are not an itemized list of things that you do. Sin is a heart condition of having a nature that is against God. And we're going to see that more and more about this idea that there is this nature that we are born into. Where it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I want you to look at this verse and I want you to to understand this. That if you are in Christ today, if you have committed your lives to Jesus, this verse is your past. But if you're not in Christ Jesus, this is your present. There are what the world would say good people who sin and trespass, and I'm going to start to step on toes. Well, (laughs) this isn't the first week I'll be stepping on toes, but I'm going to start to talk about the fact that as we look at this text, we start to realize that no one is good, not one. Often sin has more to do with what we don't do than what we do. And we need to understand that. See, Christ didn't just not sin. He did everything right. And when this text is talking about being dead in your sins or your transgression, dead literally means a corpse. So what can you do when you're dead? Nothing. Nothing. That's the right answer. It means a corpse. It means a lifeless vessel. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul is teaching that all are dead prior to being made alive in Christ. And you're like, what are you talking about? I have a pulse. I can breathe. My heart is beating. No, no, no. I'm not dead. No, no, no. What we're going to see consistently through this is that he's talking about the spiritual. He's talking about the eternal. Are you dead spiritually? The evidence that we are dead is that we start to follow the ways of this world. We are under the dominion of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is not about a momentary lapse in judgment, but a nature that we're born into. And each of us have a sin nature, which since the garden, since Adam and Eve decided to say, no, God, I want to do it my way, this nature has been imputed to us. It has been given to us. And in a few verses in Ephesians, we'll then hear about the righteousness that can be imputed to us. But again, the good news is accentuated by the fact that the bad news is so bad. Paul stresses the spiritual deadness. And I believe anyone 
teaching on this particular text needs to do the same. We have to stress the fact that our spiritual deadness before coming to Christ is horrific. It is horrible. And often we excuse people's behavior, don't we? Because we either say one, one truth that is absolutely true. Everyone is a sinner. Yes, that's true. We all are even at the foot of the cross. Or because we want to believe and we start to say that people are inherently good. We want to say that. We want to think that. But again, I'm about to step on some toes because i got to be honest about what this text teaches. No one is good other than Christ. There is no righteousness or righteous behavior apart from the Trinity, apart from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes to the church in Rome, in the book of Romans, and he quotes the Hebrew scriptures. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 14 and 53 in Romans 3 when he says this. As it is written, none is righteous. You want to know what none means in Greek? None. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Again, the bad news is pretty bad, but it accentuates how good the good news is. No one seeks after God. And as we've seen leading up to this passage through Ephesians chapter 1, it requires God to intervene because our spiritual deadness means we cannot come alive on our own. Our sin nature makes it so we don't make spiritual decisions that help us. That is why there is no working our way to God. Never mind the fact that you're good, that you can do on your own, will never outweigh the bad that you've already done. But not only that, when we do things that we think are good apart from God, we actually tend to do them for the wrong reasons, and they're worthless as well. Verse 3, all of us, so he's making a blanket statement. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is bad news, but it's about to get so much better. All of us used to live among this. All of us used to gratify the cravings of our flesh, followed its desires and thoughts. And then it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We are enemies of God without Jesus imputing his righteousness to us. That's bad news. We do not get out of this. We do not say, oh, that isn't me because we grew up in a Christian family. Now, some of us grew up in a Christian family and we love that we did because from an early age, we heard about the gospel. We saw parents that loved us and prayed for us but being grown up or growing up in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. You must receive the good news. And I think many who grew up in a Christian family have taken it for granted, if I'm going to be honest. Which hopefully means that if you're in this Christian family, you've heard the gospel. You've seen, even more importantly, the gospel lived out in front of you daily. But the thing that some of us don't realize about our children is possibly that they've had their hearts hardened by growing up in a Christian home. My kids get to hear the gospel. They get to hear us love them, love Aaron and I, love one another, love other people, but they also get to see us in HD. And when they see us in high definition, they know that we're not perfect, but we pursue the perfect one. And this hardening of heart happens, and I say this a lot, you probably already know this, you're like, I know what he's about to say. Hardness of heart happens when you hear the truth of God and you ignore or disobey. 
we do this in the church all the time and our heart becomes sanitized to the goodness of what God has done for us. And some of our children, if we're honest, have heard it, maybe seen it lived out sometimes, not lived out other times, and we've grown a callousness against God's love and his gift of salvation. So Paul's saying all have been dead in our transgressions. And the evidence has been that we constantly gratify our sinful nature. But what excuse do we have? We're dead. Spiritually dead people make spiritually dead decisions and talk about spiritually dead things and produce spiritually dead results. That's what spiritual deadness does. And that may not be easy to hear, but think about it. Fruit can only grow from something that is alive. Fruit can only grow from something that is alive. So if something is dead, there will be no fruit. And trees and plants and organisms that are alive will produce something. So how does alive, being made alive, take place? Let's look at a very interesting altercation. So you're in Ephesians. I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles open, to go to John chapter 3. What's the most popular verse in the Bible? John 3.16, we know it. It's on coffee cups. We've heard this. We've seen the dude with the, the rainbow afro. We know this verse, but do you know the context? Because we're about to talk about the context. Jesus has this altercation with this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law. He has studied the first five books of our Old Testament. He's memorized them. He knows them. And here's a conversation that happens about spiritual deadness, and some of us don't even see it. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So think about this scene. You've got Jesus. You've got this teacher who has been going from town to town with his people, with his crew, with his posse, if you will. And if you know from John earlier on in John, we see Jesus at a wedding, and we've heard the whispers about Jesus being at this wedding, about this miracle that took place where Jesus became the ultimate bartender. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And this Pharisee, this teacher of the law, who was well-respected, he was well-known in Jerusalem, comes to Jesus to talk and ask some questions but did you see when Nicodemus decided to go and meet with Jesus? At night. Why? Because they didn't have electricity. Everyone was asleep. Everyone was not around. He did not want to be seen. So Nick at night, as I call him, <laughs> decided that he was going to go meet with Jesus because he knew that Jesus possessed something that he did not currently possess. And Nicodemus and all the Pharisees had gone through a lot of study. They had gone through a lot of time, and in most cases, a lot of pride to become what they were, to get a title. And here comes this degree-less laborer named Jesus, who didn't do all the things that these other teachers of the law had done, who seems to not only have a following, but based on what Nicodemus has just said, believes that God is especially with this rabbi named Jesus. So let's look at Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Who remembers the born again movement? Okay, all right, no, it's not just you, Janet. No, it's not just you. So 
Look it up. It's in your history books. Anyway, and so, um, yeah. But what he's saying is Nicodemus is technically not asking a question. He's just saying, hey, there's something different about you. And now Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. He hears a statement, and Jesus jumps right in, and he says, no one can see, no one can taste, no one can experience or be in the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Um, what? That's what I'd be thinking if I'm Nicodemus. Bro, I'm just making small talk. Why are you so serious? Like, that would be the conversation I'd be having. But Jesus knew Nicodemus's heart and his main desire to understand what Nicodemus was missing. See, Nicodemus knows all the words of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's memorized them. Not only that, he probably understands the context, and obviously he speaks Hebrew, so he gets it. That was funny. It doesn't have to be funny to you. It was funny to me. But Jesus is saying that all the study, all the things that you've done, all the the self-righteous things that you've tried to do to get your title is not enough to find the kingdom of God. Not only that, knowing all the words without knowing the word who became flesh is hopeless. Because regurgitating verses or his attendance in the synagogue and any other self-righteous thing he does for the wrong reasons will not be what God asks of him or of us. So Nicodemus' response to Jesus' statement seems like a pretty fair question. The problem is Jesus is speaking of the spiritual. He's speaking of the eternal. And now we have Nick who's about to ask about the physical. You ready? I love this question. Verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter into a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Gross. <laughs> That's a fair question, Nicodemus. The problem is that Jesus and you are not talking about the same things. You ever been there? You ever been talking with someone? It turns out you're not talking about the same thing. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and he's saying, because of all your study, with all your devotion to the physical and all that you can accomplish on your own, you don't think you need God. You've only been able to understand the physical rather than the eternal and the spiritual. Because like anyone who is without Christ as their sole means of justification, you're spiritually dead. Verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you. So he's basically saying this is for real. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Now, when you look at spirit, it's capital. It's capital. So we understand that this is the Holy Spirit that he's speaking of. And flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And then he uses this great analogy of the wind. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus is taking it a step further. He's saying to Nicodemus that not only has Nicodemus been misinterpreting Jesus' words in this conversation, but really he's misinterpreting the words of the Hebrew Scriptures, which he's got a doctorate in. And I see this often when someone comes to me who wants to find out what the Bible says about something. Well, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about end times? What does the Bible say about this or that? And often, they're just looking for a loophole or a physical excuse to not trust what the Bible says. And hear me, that's what spiritually dead people do. Being born again is not about a reset of your morals 
or even a makeover, but being born again is about a takeover of your life spiritually that now says that you are born into the family of God through receiving the gift of salvation in the work, person, and power of Jesus Christ. And it's through this being born of water, and water in the Old Testament often refers to being cleansed. So you look at this water, what does he mean water? Like coming out for the first time and then the second? No, no, no. Being cleansed. You must be born of water and of spirit. That you would receive this washing of water and you would receive the spirit, a spiritually alive spirit through the gift of the Holy Spirit that resides in you. Jesus' point was that just as the wind cannot be controlled or understood by human beings, but at the same time its effects can be witnessed. So also it is with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled or understood, but the proof of his work is apparent. Where the Spirit works, there is undeniable and unmistakable evidence, isn't there? You don't have to guess if it was the Holy Spirit because it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Still not getting it. And Jesus responds, and he's going to get a little fresh with Nicodemus, just saying. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? For truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still you people. Woo, you don't say you people. (laughs) But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Nicodemus is still not getting the spiritual rather than the physical. And Jesus calls him out on it, doesn't he? Nicodemus is a teacher of the law, and he missed it. These other Pharisees have missed it. Which means, as your pastor, if you're a part of this church, I need to constantly remind us that if he can miss it, we can miss it. We can make it all about regurgitating verses. We can make it all about attendance in church. We can make it all about doing certain things with a certain title, and we can make it all about us, and we can totally miss it. We can make the same exact mistake. And based on what Paul says, for many of us, it's because we're spiritually dead and we don't know it. But that's the bad news. Woo, that's bad. That's bad news. I'm thankful that this verse gets, or this passage gets happier. The bad news is that we're all born into a sin nature that keeps us from being alive in Christ. And there is no effort or work that we can do on our own behalf to be made right in God's eyes. Spoiler alert, many of us are like Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense, and we don't even realize we're dead. You had 18 years to watch that movie. Just saying. (laughs) Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God... In the Greek, really, the way this is is shown, it's, but God. Oh, I don't know if there are better two words in Scripture. Because this is about to change the direction. We've talked about this in nature. We've talked about gratifying our sinful nature and doing the passions of what our flesh wants. But God. Woo! Ears better perk up. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, who decides not to give us what we deserve, mercy, made us, what's that word? Alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. But God, 
How often in our lives have we been stuck in something with no will of our own to fix it or to change us, but God decides to intervene? God who is rich in mercy, God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask for or imagine, makes us alive. He makes dead things alive. He makes decaying things new. He resurrects, and my God transforms, even when we were dead. Does anybody else's God make dead things alive? No, only Jesus who not only said he could, but proved he could by dying and rising again. But it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you've been resurrected. It is by grace that you've been predestined. It is by grace you've been born again. It is by grace that you've been made alive. Woo! This is a good text. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay, There should be no other verse that brings us more joy to someone in this place today that has trusted Jesus Christ with their lives, but can we just be honest, is still stuck in some kind of sin. This verse should challenge us, but it should also bring us such joy. See, God not only made us alive, he made us righteous. He made us a testimony of his grace. He has seated us with Christ Jesus. So check it. When you fail, Jesus doesn't. When you lie, Jesus doesn't. When you make life about you, even though Jesus should and could, he doesn't. And if you are a child of God, you are seated with Christ And your life is stamped and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And because of this amazing truth, you are seated with him. See, God the Father, if you are found alive in Christ Jesus, when he looks at you, he sees his son. So God the Father doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your transgressions. He doesn't see yours and my unwillingness to obey. He sees his son and all that his son has accomplished on our behalf. And as we'll see, you didn't do this. So this good news that's accentuated by how bad the bad news was, you didn't earn this. While you were decaying in your deadness, without any hope to save yourself or make yourself alive, our God came in. He intervened. But God, and through his mercy and grace, made a dead thing new. Made a dead thing alive. Made a dead thing righteous. But why? Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You want to know why? To show off. That's why he did it. To show off his incomparable riches of grace. So you and I would be a trophy of grace. An example of God's goodness. Not because we are good. We're not. But because he is. And even though you and I brought nothing to the table, God showed his incomparable riches of his grace expressed through who? Christ Jesus. To show off his kindness to you. So let's see that last conversation piece between Jesus and Nicodemus. In John 3, verse 13, he says, this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses was lifted up... 
lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus makes a declaration that not only has he gone to heaven and come to earth, but he is the only one to do so. And so when he speaks of heavenly things, he speaks from firsthand information. He uses the Son of Man as the title, which he used most often for himself. And then he quotes Numbers 21 in the Old Testament, where Moses is leading the Israelites out of of, uh, their slavery towards the promised land. They're wandering, and they start to whine. I am so glad whining stopped happening in the church. (laughs) But they're whining. Man, we miss slavery. That's what they're saying. And they're going, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. At least we had different choices for food. This manna doesn't even have flavor. And they're whining. And God decides to allow snakes to bite them. Woo, read this. It's crazy. And there's poison in these snakes. You're like, what? Wait for it. It's foreshadowing. And God then tells Moses, grab a staff, grab a pole, and put a bronze statue of a snake on top of it. And everyone who looks to that snake will not die. You're like, what? Yeah, that was foreshadowing to our king who would be lifted high. And would be raised up and would be seated in the heavenly realms. He would be resurrected and he would be hung on a cross. And everyone who would look to him, everyone who would believe in him, would have eternal life. How? By simply looking up to this figure. Wait, all I have to do is look at him? No, you have to lift him up. He's got to be above every name. So do we lift up Jesus above every name? Or in our lives, do we just simply make him one of the many things that we pay homage to? And being lifted up, this idea of being lifted up has a lot of connotations. But let me give you three that I think matter the most when it comes to our king. Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And he was pierced for whose transgressions? Ours. He was made sin for us because we sinned and so that we could inherit his righteousness. The great exchange took place. He got what we deserved. We got what he deserved. And like Moses lifting the snake on the stick, for those who would look to it would find salvation, would be saved, would not die. Those who look to Jesus on the cross for their sole means of justification would not die. They would receive eternal life if they would trust the Lord. They will have eternal life. They will have everlasting life. They will have life that continues because they know Jesus. And eternal life, I love it when the Bible defines a word. Because a lot of times we can go, oh, eternal life. But we have no idea what we're talking about. We just think it's heaven. Here's what Jesus says eternal life is in John 17, 3. Eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see how it doesn't say that they know about you? See how it doesn't say that they know of you? This ain't like knowing about Abraham Lincoln. This is about having a relationship with the one true God, and that's what eternal life is. So do you know Jesus, church? The next place that Jesus was raised up was physically when he defeated death by rising from the dead. 
See, in this moment, sin no longer had dominion for those who would look to the Son. Because Jesus is high and lifted up, he is above every name. Because Jesus defeated the power that sin had, it no longer would reign. Death no longer had the final word. And because Jesus is resurrected, church, if you've trusted Christ, you can be resurrected. Because Jesus is alive, you can be alive in Christ. And here's the third place that Jesus was lifted up. It was to the right hand of the Father. And he resides in this most important place in the heavenly realms. And for those who have received the grace offered in Christ, we too are lifted up in the heavenly realms, seen by God as a co-heir with Christ. But don't get full of yourself. You didn't earn it. It's all because of what Christ has imputed to you. It's all because of what he did for you that you could not do for yourself. So how is this possible? How can you and I, who have done nothing to earn God's favor, be lifted up with Christ? Let me take you to one of the most important verses in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. They're all important, but this one's more tweetable than Numbers 16, 8, okay? For it is by, what's that word? Grace. You have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. <laughs> it is a gift of God. See, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and you have breath in your lungs because of God's grace. You have life because of God's grace. You know Christ today because of God's grace. You, my friends, those of us who have identified ourselves with Jesus, who have humbled ourselves and said, I can't work my way to God. My attendance in church isn't, isn't enough. I can't do enough good to make myself right. But Jesus is good enough. And I look to him for my sole means of salvation. For those of us who have been made alive in Christ, we are no longer dead in our transgressions. Because you've received grace. You've gotten what you don't deserve from our God, who gives us grace to know him, and he even gives us the, great, the faith to show that we know him by living for him. And this is not from yourselves. This is not by your own doing. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. We cannot be proud Christians. That is an oxymoron. If you don't know what an oxymoron is, Google it, Okay? This is not by your effort. This is by God's grace solely. And I want you to hear me say this. And actually, as I leave this church, and, and especially some of you have heard me teach for years, I pray that this does not harden your hearts because I believe this is one of the most important things any of us could ever realize, that you are saved completely by grace through faith in Christ. You are saved completely by grace through faith in Christ. Where do you see yourself in there? You don't. It's all God's work. And he decided to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And that is the most important truth you can ever understand. Because when you do, you start to love God. And you start to love others. So why were any of us made alive in Christ? I would contend it's for God's pleasure. Look with me to Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. If you're in your Bible, underline handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he said, you're completely saved by grace. You did nothing to be saved. And now all of a sudden, I've got stuff for you to do. But you don't do it to be saved. You do it because you're saved. 
And he says, we are God's handiwork. In other words, we are God's workmanship. We are God's, this word essentially means poetry. I like to think of it as, if you have kids, you understand this, or if you were a kid, you probably were. At some point, you, you took a test, you hopefully got an A, and on this A, the piece of paper with the A on it, your parents put a magnet on the fridge and put that piece of paper. In Christ Jesus, that's what you are to God. You are that, that perfect test put on the refrigerator because you are God's handiwork. You are his poetry. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And because you were made alive in Christ, you were made alive to share his love, to be his reflection to, to a world who literally can't understand it. They don't understand who Jesus is without, without truly being drawn by God. And understanding this grace that is given freely to those who would receive it, those who would humble themselves, those who would repent and change direction. And once we do, God, according to this, the verse right before, he has marching orders for us. He has things that he would have us do. So he decides, and I don't want you to miss this, he decides to love this world using us, his church his people. So husbands, you can't love your wives the way that you ought to. You can't. But God chose you to be her husband and to love his precious daughter through you. So don't miss that responsibility, men. Parents, God loves your children way more than you do and you think you love them. But God decided to make you the steward of your household, of your children, to make you the parent of your children so he could love them using you. God loves that person who you work with or know, who stiff-armed God over and over, doesn't want to go to church, doesn't want to talk about Jesus, wants nothing to do with them. God loves that person in your life more than you realize, and God puts you in their life on purpose. That you would be a conduit of grace to that person that you would be the word of God to them lived out, that they would be able to experience God's love through you. So alive in Christ, sharing his love means a lot more, church, than just being a Christian and being nice to people. You and I are direct represent representations and representatives and the ambassadors and the conduit and the tool, you're God's tool, <laughs> that God uses to make much of his name. So look around. I want you to look around real fast, like, like exorcist. Like, look around, okay? Look at the people in this room. Y'all are the people that God's choosing to love this world. God chose you to be the people that share his love. Now, the people in this room, good looking. Just going to say it. Just good looking people up in here. But would you pick us? I wouldn't. And yet God is so good, he's so powerful, he's so in control, that somehow, through the work of his spirit, we are used for the glory of his name. So Church of the Valley, I want to affirm you. You're allowing God's work to be done here. Some of you have been here for decades and you've seen things happen and you've gone through changes and issues and you've stayed faithful. And I praise God because faithfulness is God's economy. And it is only done through the work of the Spirit. 
And so I praise God for that. And some of you, you, you kind of came with us when we moved from Sunnyvale, moved here, we planted a church, came, and now all of a sudden we've merged. And there have been things you've loved. There have been things you haven't liked. There are a bunch of things you don't know about, and I praise God for that. <laughs> but I want to affirm you in your willingness to trust the Lord in this because I think he's got some amazing things planned in and through his people. And I believe he wants to use Church of the Valley and I believe he wants to use us to bear much fruit for the glory of his name. See, we want to be known as the Church of the Valley, one that through God's grace and mercy have been made alive in Christ. And to find the joy that only comes from actually being stewards of his love to people that need it. So that means that we're going to target, if you will, those that are around us, our sphere of influence, our oikos, if you will to share his love to different ages, to different demographics, to different complexions, to different nationalities. You know why? Because heaven ain't just white. <laughs> Germans and African Americans and Koreans and Chinese and Russians. The heaven is full of people that look like us, and people that don't. And I want us to be encouraged that God decides to use faulty, valuable, messed up people like you and I. That he would get the glory. You know why? So he can show off. So once you know him, you should show him off. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Worship team, you can come on up. Or actually, yeah, come on up. God, I pray for this opportunity that we have to respond Lord, we don't just have the opportunity to respond in singing, but we have the opportunity to respond in giving. And so, God, I pray that if we came prepared, that you would use this. God, I pray that as we sing praises to your name, that you would use that to soften our hearts to the goodness of the truth of this text, that we're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, not because of anything we've done, but you've made dead people alive, and you should get praise for that, God. So we thank you for what you're doing in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.